recruiting is not enough. That's good hard work and law firms and law schools are actually pretty good at it. But then making sure that folks get the support and the opportunity to have the learning and development and training experiences they need to compete on a more even playing field. That's really where the work has to be done, I think, in the profession right now. Welcome to The Law in Black and White, a podcast featuring Jonathan Greenblatt and myself, Brian Parker. We're the co-founders of Legal Innovators, an alternative legal service provider. We've been friends for over 25 years. We're both lawyers with lots of opinions. In this podcast, we look at current events, the business of law, innovation, and diversity in the legal industry, and occasionally, we'll even talk about sports. As the name of our show suggests, we recognize that there may be aspects of the law that require our thinking to go beyond just the black and white of the law. We share what we know, what we've learned, and what we're still learning. John? Today, we have Jim Leipold, Executive Director of the National Association for Law Placement, now joining us as we celebrate pride and explore how the legal industry has improved inclusion for the LGBTQ plus community. Jim is the Executive Director of NAL, a position he has held since 2004. Prior to joining NAL, he worked at the Law School Admission Council, LSAC, for five and a half years. And prior to joining LSAC in 1998, he was the Director of Admission at Temple University School of Law, where he was also an instructor in legal writing and research. He's a magna cum laude graduate at Brown University and Temple University School of Law. He's one of the leading experts on the entry-level legal employment market and speaks and writes frequently on trends in legal employment for recent law school graduates. Jim, we're extremely grateful that you joined us today. Maybe we can just start a little bit with your background and ask you to share with the listeners your experience entering into the legal industry in the 90s. Sure. Thanks, John. I'm happy to talk about that. I went to law school a little bit later. Uh, I worked for six years between graduating from college and going to law school. And so I was a 1L in uh, 1990. And in 1991, I was uh, interviewing for jobs. And I was an active member of the what was then the Gay and Lesbian Student Organization. We didn't have T and B and Q. It was really uh, just two words. And actually, gay came first, gay and lesbian. We didn't hadn't reversed it to lesbian and gay. And I was I did well in my class. I was preparing for OCI and I was experimenting with my resume. Uh, and I used to, you know, include my membership in that LGBT student organization or take it off with different applications. And I found really quite consistently at that moment in time that if I put that membership on there, I was much less likely to get an interview. And if I took it off, I got interviews. So I took it off. And that was really the prime debate among students at that point. Should I be out or should I not be out? Uh, I got a job at a big law firm. I was a summer there. I was closeted when I arrived because it wasn't out on my resume. And um, I very quickly met a mid-level associate, uh, LGBT people with our gay gaydar, radar, sort of found each other out. And he was really uh, frightened and he really urged me not to come out. And it's hard to cast our minds back to exactly that moment. But he explained to me that they had just had a partner who had died from AIDS and the firm was self-insured and it had been very expensive. And the firm was afraid that other gays were going to be very expensive and that it would be a real liability to come out. 
You know, and this is at a time when the bar associations in New York and Massachusetts and California, among others, had done quantitative studies sort of documenting homophobia and discrimination against gay lawyers. I did come out in the course of the summer just because I wanted to be my full self and I had a partner and there were events. And um, at the end of the summer, I was no offered and I was really shocked. Even in that moment, I didn't experience it as discrimination. I believed I must not be good enough. I couldn't do the work. This is a merits judgment. It took me a long time to really understand the dynamic of what was going on there. So, you know, fast forward to 2021 and large law firms across the country are competing for perfect scores on the HRC index right. and um, the percentage of LGBT law students who are out in the job application process has gone way up. The representation among law firms has gone way up. It's not perfect. I'm happy to talk more about those demographics, but certainly uh, by those simple measures, the profession has come a very, very long way since the mid-90s. If you ever want to throw yourself back into that moment, I think it's worth re-watching Tom Hanks in Philadelphia. Yeah. Um, it really captured that moment. Actually, it was filmed in Philadelphia, where I was at the time. Um, it really captures that moment well. Yeah. Well, th uh, thank you, Jim, for sharing such a such a personal story. And it's just... Um it's it's great that we've made some strides, but uh, it's too bad that uh, we we start there. And I think it leads us into our um, into our first question here. And I think our listeners will note that we're doing this in July as opposed to June, which is technically Pride Month. But we'll say what we say about Black History Month and Women's History Month that if we're going to talk about inclusion as a profession, everybody's in in all months, and we're honored though, that you would come and talk to us about this uh, important uh, topic. And I think your background, like I was saying, uh, identity, and it's something that people are still struggling with. So le let me start with a couple of stats, and then I'll get into the, to the question. Only 1%, and this doesn't go as far back as your story, but only 1% of U.S. lawyers uh, identified as LGBT, and we didn't have all the, all the letters in, in 2004. Uh, 15 years later, that number tripled, uh, according to your organization, uh, the National Association of Law Placement, or NALP. And among the next generation, or the newest generation in big law, the numbers are even higher. In NALP's 2019 survey of U.S. law firms, only 2% of partners identified as LGBT, whereas 5% of associates and 8% of summer associates did. While these numbers are increasing, they're still widely underreported, and this goes to the core issue of identity. Some lawyers say uh, they still feel reluctant to be out in the job, interviews, or the office, though they say climate has improved. Going back to your experience and then seeing all you've seen in these years and now leading the organization as you do, maybe you could share with our listeners, what are some things that firms can do to promote inclusiveness and support their LGBTQ attorneys? Um, going right back to the words you use, empowering them and allowing them to be their full and authentic selves. It's such a good question. And I just want to before I jump into that, lend a little bit of nuance and context to those statistics you just shared. Sure, please do. I mean, I think it's really important to understand that more than half of all the LGBT attorneys that we measure in our survey came from just four cities, New York City, D.C., L.A., and San Francisco. And so it's a, it's a real story of geography. And there are many places in our country where uh, it's still not comfortable to be out 
at a law firm, in, a, in any kind of a job. It's also, there's a big gap between small law and big law. So in the very biggest firms, that summer associate number was almost 9% last summer. But at firms of 100 and fewer, less than 2% of summer associates were uh, self-identified as LGBT. So, I mean, it's a big country and we all know it's a patchwork of many different communities and values, but it's very uneven. And by that, I just want to emphasize that I don't want to come off as overselling the idea that it's easy to be out in the legal profession. I think for many people it is. I think it's most true for white men. And I think, you know, in this country, gay white men at least have been the public face of the LGBT movement. And there's tremendous controversy around that because our LGBTQ community is so diverse and there's so much overlap with other identities. And, you know, I was just in New York City for Pride weekend and it was so black and brown and young. And yet in the legal profession, you know, what stands out to me is that hmm. gay representation has advanced much more quickly than the representation of black attorneys. And Hispanic or Latinx attorneys, you know, we've got 2% of partners are LGBT, but we still have less than 1% of all partners are black women and less than 1% of partners are Latinx women. And those numbers have just been abysmally slow. So I think some of the progress for the LGBT community has been because of the rapid changes in society. Um, and I think some of that is the result of, of white male privilege. I think for all lawyers, right, the things that law firms can do to make people feel welcome and allow them to be their authentic selves is to work hard, to do the hard work at creating inclusive communities and to thinking through at a structural level every piece of the business model, right? How is work assigned? How are the informal relationships that happen in terms of networking and formal and informal mentoring? Who's monitoring that for differential impact on women, on people of color, on LGBTQ associates? We have made great strides in the legal profession and big law has done a great job. But what we see from the numbers, and this is true in legal education as well, so law firms actually do a great job of recruiting a diverse class um, in terms of the representation of young lawyers of color and LGBTQ lawyers. They're overrepresented compared to the graduating class. So the graduating class last year had about four and a half percent LGBT students, and yet almost nine percent LGBTQ summer associates at the biggest firms. What law firms don't do a great job with is supporting and promoting careers, retaining lawyers, making sure they persist through to partnership. So we lose people of color, we lose women, we lose LGBT lawyers at a much faster rate than white men. And so examining that bleed out of the pipeline. You know, the same thing is true in law schools. Law schools do a great job of admitting super diverse classes, but the employment outcomes are not equal. There are huge gaps racially, by gender, by LGBTQ in terms of employment outcomes. Um, and so it's the recruiting is not enough. That's good hard work and law firms and law schools are actually pretty good at it. But then making sure that folks get the support and the opportunity to have the learning and development and training experiences they need to compete on a more even playing field. That's really where the work has to be done, I think, in the profession right now. Jim, if I could pick up on that, on the law school side of that, because we, we had a, a webinar 
about a month ago or so with uh, four incredibly impressive black law school deans. And one of the things we talked about, they talked about, was the need for a greater symbiotic relationship between the law schools and the law firms in developing careers um, along the lines of what you were saying. So what have you and now in your research or just your observations seen from law schools in terms of students uh, self-identifying as LGBTQ plus and being uh, supported in a way that uh, they feel comfortable and, and helped to develop their full potential? I mean, again, I think it varies a lot by market and geography. I think back, you know, to when I was in law school and to when I worked in the law school admission council and people were first beginning to do research about students' willingness to come out in the application process and in applying for the LSAT. I think in general, the climate is quite good at many law schools and there are LGBT student organizations and, you know, Lavender Law uh, that the National LGBT Bar hosts as a job fair, among other things, have just provided tremendous resources and support for LGBT students. I think there are still a lot of religious schools with exemptions from the ABA non-discrimination standards, and there are great variances by market and geography. So again, we can't generalize. And I think LGBT students, like LGBT lawyers, self-select geographies and institutions where, where they think they're going to be welcome. And again, I think, you know, the intersection of race and ethnicity with other attributes, we just can't overemphasize that. I think it's easier to be out uh, at law school if you're a white male than it is if you're a black woman or a Asian woman. I just think those intersectional identities where you're facing potentially discrimination as a woman, potentially discrimination as a person of color, and also being you know, a sexual minority or a lesbian or self-identified somewhere on the LGBTQ spectrum makes it more difficult. And I think that intersectionality space is where I think law schools have to spend more time because we lose people. And, you know, to the extent you can build a community that's supportive of LGBTQ people, you're going to build a community that begins to be more supportive for people of color. So I just think those things are really, really tightly linked. And I think we need to look at the employment outcomes piece in law school and work with each community to make sure they're not missing out on opportunities. I mean, we see among LGBT law school, LGBTQ law school graduates that they're more likely to go into public interest than their classmates. And that makes sense. Maybe they have a more, some subset of our community has a more mission-driven purpose in going to law school. We see that they're less likely to take a first job in private practice. Some of those same patterns persist for people of color as well, um, and maybe for some of the same reasons. But there's also some barriers that cause that to happen in terms of access to first job. I think the virtual OCI and the virtual interviewing has actually been this wonderful experiment. And I think the opportunity for employers to interview students in places where they might not have been able to go in person and the opportunity for students who are often quite comfortable with technology to interview from their homes, from a place of confidence, to only have to be present from the waist up, uh, has allowed, I mean, the reports from law firms is that it was a really strong interview cycle last year and students were well prepared and that the Zoom uh, or technology video interface worked really well for everybody and firms reported finding a more diverse set of students 
to come in. And so I think, you know, let's deconstruct OCI. And it, OCI has always been super problematic. What a crazy thing to put people in hotel rooms <laughs> for interviews for their first job. I kind of hope the Charles Hotel's business model is finished forever in Cambridge. Like, how is that the right thing to do to put people in hotel rooms to interview for their first job? So I, I think thinking through structurally all those things to break down barriers that exclude people is where the hard work is. I have to say it was pretty awkward. Yeah, <laughs> right? Be. For everybody. It it's right. awkward for the lawyers. It's awkward for the law students. Yeah. It's it's awkward all the way around. You tell people in other professions, yeah, I interviewed for my first job in a hotel room. No, it's, it's wild. They think, right. we're, they think we're crazy. <laughs> yeah. Uh, very insightful, uh, especially the last part and, and um, you know, the focus on the structural, which we, we try to do here at Legal Innovators. Um, Jim, we started with identity, and obviously that's, that's one of the barriers facing uh, the LGBTQ community. What would you see as some of the other uh, big barriers um, facing the community that, that we want to highlight? Well, I mean, I think, you know, to answer this, it's, it really bleeds into the next line of questioning that I know we're going to talk about. And that is just that the face of the LGBT community is changing so quickly in our country and throughout the world. And this, and the notion of gender is changing so quickly. So, you know, where law firms got comfortable very quickly with having gay and lesbian associates and partners, the gender non-binary, gender fluid world that young people are growing up in, law firms are in no way prepared for that. I mean, some have begin, begun to grapple with it, but that was the other kind of insight for me when I was at Pride in New York City is just how gender fluid the street was. Um, and I've, you know, been moved at a number of Lavender Law job fairs over the year as I look around the room and find, you know, as an old white guy, I'm trying to gender people when I look at them and mm -hmm. fully a third of the people in the room, I can't gender and they don't mm -hmm. want me to gender them. And that's great. But that, you know, again, to be a person of color and gender fluid or gender non-binary or trans, those are super hard and um, raise questions about professional dress and the use of pronouns and just uh, comfort level and awkwardness. So I think that next frontier, it's on the T and the Q and the plus part of our community and you know young people have no patience for old people like us not understanding their world and they're mm -hmm. not they're not going to work at places that don't include them and don't make them feel welcome we've done we have a gender non-binary task force that's been doing good work over the last two years just trying to help educate the legal profession about ways to create inclusive communities for gender non-binary law students and lawyers and it's, it's been a privilege to watch it. You know, I feel like that's where the political action is right now. You know, there are some students across law schools right now trying to organize a professional dress, dress professional day where students of all different sexual orientations and gender would dress professionally to come into school that day, but in ways that challenge professional norm. dress yes. norms and codes, right? And there are still law firms that have dress codes. Women will wear, men will wear. Like we're way past that. So again, talking about structural things, the community of the law firm has to sit down and look at that. What really is professional dress and why do we have it? Again, I think the pandemic has helped us 
break that down. I mean, the dry cleaners have gone belly up, but none of us are dressing in the suits and ties and formal business attire we used to. And that breakdown in that old regime, I think, helps bring in an opportunity for broader professional dress norms uh, across all professions, but ours in particular, that I think would be very valuable. Jim, following up on what you said, uh, if law firms are beginning to address this, and you're putting out some guidance, it sounds like, and some ideas, you talked about dress. Two things I would ask you, what other advice do you have for law firms based on your interaction with this younger generation that, as you said, has no patience for people who don't uh, uh, make them feel comfortable in this world? And secondly, how do law firms get the balance right between what they may be ready for and what their clients may be ready for uh, at this point in time? So maybe you can deal with those together if you have a view. Yeah, I mean, I'll start with the client piece because maybe it's easier or more fun to answer. I mean, the world of clients is so broad and there's so many clients out there like, and they're the clients students want to work with, right? Silicon Valley and startups and, you know, internet and cryptocurrency. Those are worlds where gender fluidity and LGBT welcomeness are our core values. Uh, I think there are other clients in more traditional industries where that's going to be harder. I think that's, it's always going to be a dance, but it's got to be one where the law firm is supportive of the lawyer and where there's a dialogue about individual engagements and individual clients. And, you know, when I work with young people, I find it helpful just to talk about the fact that it's all drag and it's all theater. And there may be, we're all playing roles and we're all dressing up to play a particular role on a particular day. So there may be days when you have to go to court or when you have to meet with that client where you have to do a particular costume and play a particular role. And that's fine if you're willing to do that, if you can then go back to your office and be yourself and take that costume off and let down that character that you've played for the good of the firm and the client and to do your work. I mean, we do that naturally all the time. And in some ways, gay and lesbian people are really good at that, right? We've been covering from a very young age, uh, particularly maybe not so much now young people, but people my age had to cover and be present themselves to the world as other than they were for their safety, for acceptance by their family to get through. So we're actually really good at that shape-shifting and role-playing. And I think we can diffuse some of that anxiety if as a culture at the law firm, we can talk about all the roles we play, right? Mm -hmm. The white male partner plays roles and has costumes and does different uh, characters on different days with different people, depend on, depending on what they're called to do. Um, I think it's super important. I mean, in general, the talent side of the house, so the recruiters and the lawyer professional development staff and the diversity staff, they're the champions for this culture shift. And I think finding within the law firm, kind of through a cultural self-audit, where are the champions on the partnership side and where are the barriers on the partnership side and having individual campaigns to grow the minds and hearts of individual people. I mean, I think 
you know, in America, gay families have had this experience where when they find out someone in their family is gay, how they think about this changes. That's been true for 20 years. And it's been the, it was the strategy in the whole gay marriage campaign, show the face of who LGBTQ people are to America, and they won't hate us as much. I think this idea of reverse mentoring, so we learn so much from young people. So law firms deliberately pairing queer people with older partners and having them learn about each other as human beings. It's one of the hardest things in this country right now in almost every arena. We're so encamped and polarized and so reluctant to talk across our belief system values. But really that coming to know someone as a human being, as opposed to a set of identities, is the most powerful learning experience always. And so to the extent firms can be deliberate about setting up those learning cultures and creating situations where that getting to know human beings happen, then they're not so concerned about what someone's wearing or what their pronouns are or, you know, what their family structure is. They're, they know them as a person and then they know their lawyering skills and the quality of the work they do. And those are the, the most important things. Yeah. Appreciate the nuance of that answer. And I'll, I'll have to uh, compliment you as well. I, I don't think we've had a guest that's uh, quoted Shakespeare yet. Uh, and, and you got the as you like it play in there. So uh, well, well done. Uh, must have been a literature major at some point along the way. I was an English <laughs> literature major at Brown for sure. Okay. No, I, lo- I love that. That's God, nice. a, li- a literature major at Brown. That's like the quintessential no, no. Brown. That's exactly. Well, it is like, oh, wait, all the world's the stage. I, I know that. Uh, I know that. Anyway, well, uh, Jim, we're, we're going to come back maybe the last question, because I think you've done such a good job uh, for the audience of weaving the questions together, giving us solutions along the way. And so maybe I'll make the last question a little bit of a catch-all. You know, it's going to ask, um, you know, what are some of the things that we can do to make a more uh, inclusive environment? But of course, you've already talked about, uh, you know, gender-neutral dress um, pronouns. I mean, I guess we could talk about affinity groups. And so maybe the two questions here would be, are there any things that we're leaving out? Uh, and then number two, are there topics that you would at least want to flag for the audience that we didn't get a chance to raise in this conversation? The main thing is that if a firm wants to change their success with retaining diverse lawyers of all sorts, they have to do the structural assessment and the cultural inventory. And so Simple things can make a big difference. Has the firm had a conversation about signature blocks in email and about whether lawyers are going to add their pronouns? And is it voluntary or is it required? And what what are the norms? Has the recruiting team talked to the hiring committee about cover letters they might get that address them with the honorific MX instead of Mr. or Ms. Mm -hmm. And the fact that that's not a typo, but that they might not have known your gender and among young people, if gender's indeterminate or if they choose to present themselves uh, in a gender non-binary way, they will maybe also extend that to others. Have we talked about, we even looked at our employee handbook dress code, which we probably wrote many, many, many years ago and had things in there about open-toe shoes and just like, have we really sat down in 2021 and, and thought about that? Not in terms of what how we feel, but in terms of retaining the lawyers of all sorts that we want. 
Um, and then with this return to work moment that we're in, I think it's super important in every case to think through how do the policy decisions we're making have a differential impact on different lawyers and staff who work here? How do families who have kids that are younger than 12 that can't be vaccinated, how does our requirement that their parents come back to the office, how is that a different burden than it is for families that don't have kids under 12 who haven't been vaccinated? For families of color who have disproportionately lost family members during the pandemic, what is the experience for them of this second, third, fourth surge and and being asked to come back to public spaces. And then I guess the other piece is just that no organization, but law firms in particular, can ignore what's happening around us. And so we live in a world where extraordinarily horrible things happen in the news. And the community that has an impact on the people you work with in the communities. And Law firms have to have an emergency response team and a group of people that immediately figure out, is this something where we speak publicly as a firm? How do we speak to our staff and lawyers about what just happened? How do we, uh, you know, our last year changed us forever in that arena. And we can't just service clients and just do the work. We see more and more law firm leaders speaking out publicly about these atrocities that happen around us, but that the collective weight of those, you know, the anniversary of the Pulse nightclub massacre had a huge impact on every year when that comes around. That's a moment for the gay community that's hard. Just having a community where you're aware of those things, the anniversary of George Floyd's murder has a different impact on different members of our team. And how do we, if we want to create an inclusive community, how do we do that uh, and be mindful of this violent world we live in and create some shelter for our people in the midst of that? Thank you, Jim. Uh, it was a delightful conversation. Uh, we're we're, we're going to a shift before John closes us out with uh, a little bit of our fun segment. Of course, you're the guest, so you get to go first. Uh, I'll remind the audience to please share with us your pet peeves. We try to do these uh, during during each show uh, where John and I and our guest or guest uh, share a pet peeve that they've had for one, two, three weeks or whatever it is. And so uh, this week, Jim has the honors and he's going to uh, share his pet peeve. Yeah, I guess my pet peeve isn't necessarily of the of the three weeks, but it's of the last year. I just hate Zoom and I have developed a Zoom rage. And if I look at my calendar for the week ahead and it's filled with blue blocks of Zoom meetings, I get really angry. And you know, I'm a big old extrovert. I'm amazed that we were able to do everything we were able to do remotely. But the, the camera time for me takes a toll. And I really experienced that in a visceral way. Um, and I'm trying to shift some things to telephone calls. I don't know what it is. I probably need to see a shrink, but I really find myself loathing the Zoom moment, uh, particularly when it's most of my day. Yeah. My daughter's graduating from with her degree in psychology. I'm happy to make a reference. <laughs> John doing biz dev, not only for the company, but for his daughter. Nice, uh, nice job there, John. <laughs> uh, thank you, Jim. Uh, John? Well, my pet peeve is very specific and it probably won't 
uh, resonate with that many people, certainly not as global as Zoom. Which, by the way, Jim, it's funny. My wife is completely on the same page with you. And I'm an extrovert and don't have any problem with it. I actually find myself much happier than when I have to travel to things that where there's so much downtime to get to the half hour that matters. Um, right. but, uh, but it's funny that, it, that we have that different reaction. But anyway, my pet peeve is very specific and, it's, and, and, and this is really directed to those few people who have to put together binders for me. But the, the, the one, the binders that when you turn the pages, the pages fall out. Those, those, those ones that have this plastic thing that actually can't hold anything in them drive me nuts because <laughs> they're useless to me after about five pages of getting into the depth of the of what's in the binder. There are these other kinds of rings that work, <laughs> and I need to get everyone to use those. I don't know what they're called, but I'll, I'll let people know if they're working with me. All right. Well, hey, you know that's uh, that's important. You don't want to lose all your stuff. Um, so, so mine is, um, you know, th there's, it's uh, one thing, but with two, two aspects to it. So um, as many people uh, will be familiar with the story of Shakari Richardson um, by now, and she is a uh, sprinter, um, U.S., well, uh, she was a U.S. Olympic sprinter, and she was, uh, she qualified first uh, in the hundred. Uh, and she is not on the Olympic team any longer because she had a positive test for marijuana. Clearly against the, the rules, not a performance enhancer. And the, the pet peeve really here is twofold. Number one, um, she was going through her, her mother just passing. And I think that from a mental health perspective, I wonder what message we're sending, especially to young people um, that may be trying to deal with uh, a tragedy like that and uh, make a mistake and own up to it, which she did. Uh, and then two, in a world where um, we've seen the arc uh, of marijuana go from where it's illegal and we have lots of people of color uh, in prison uh, to now it's legal, lots of people are making money and uh, only a minority of them are, are people of color. I just think we've got to really be thoughtful uh, about you know, the, the, the stigma that we're attaching to this. So I'm personally very disappointed because she has a very unique style. I think she would have represented our country in a good way. And I know there's some efforts even uh, congressionally to, to get her instated. And I, I hope that can happen. So that is, uh, that's my pet peeve. And I'll turn it back to John. Brian, Brian, can I just jump in on that for one second? I mean, I think it's a super important issue on the athletics, and I just want to raise Naomi Osaka as well in this moment. And I just think we're learning an awful lot about the mental health toll that the kind of um, intense performance and public performance takes on young athletes. And I have long thought there are lessons for us to learn about the young lawyers and law students and the tremendous pressure we put on them and the mental health toll that takes. We haven't really had time today to talk about mental, the mental health crisis in the legal profession, and that's a whole other podcast. But I think there are lessons to be learned in our profession from this moment with young athletes right now and our growing awareness. And I hope we learn those lessons. I would take yeah, it I... back even further, Jim, and say it starts because uh, I've lived through this with three daughters. It starts in junior high at a level that I can tell you I did not experience in junior high. <laughs> I was not particularly stressed about my academic performance in junior high. Uh, yeah. But these kids uh, are really pressured. 
to excel and they're given work at a level that I didn't experience really until college. And um, and I think that that this generation is coming through that and then it, you know, exacerbated uh, by the level of work that we all have to do in the practice of law. So um, it is an important topic. Yeah. And and to your uh, thanks for teeing that up for us, uh, Jim. Uh, we are going to be doing something on mental health. Um, one of our most recent episodes where we talked to two leading talent officers from law firms and, uh, you know, Siobhan. Uh, Handley over to work uh, called Mental Health Facing Our Profession, uh, an existential crisis. And whether you go far as she would go or or not, um, to the very good point that you've brought up and that John has amplified, uh, it's something that we can focus, right? We're further in the science than we ever have been, and we can take the stigma out of it. And young people, as you pointed to in the example of the young people that can be teaching us, um, I think this is another area where maybe we can listen to them more and they can lead the way. But um, I'm looking forward, we're looking forward to that, uh, to that podcast. So, John, um, you know, I thought that that was a, a really good conversation. I'd be, you know, really interested um, in your, you know, your perspective as such a longstanding partner as you were and having served on policy committees, being as committed to mentoring and things as you are. Some of the very, you know, astute and even thought-provoking uh, points that Jim brought up, um, I think it was some themes uh, arose for me, and that was um, intentionality uh, and everything from mentoring, which I, which I just said, to workspace, to dress codes, to the emergence, and maybe even within the LGBTQ uh, plus that we've uh, ignored or not accounted for as much, the black and brown lawyers and the non-binary who are, um, you know, that's, uh, I think he separated it well, right? Said, we've gotten the L and the G pretty down as law firms, um, but the BTQ plus, um, not as much. And this non-binary task force that NALP has brought together, I think we could all learn from, I'll, I'll just raise my hand and say uh, that the greeting of MX, um, that was something that I learned today. Uh, and he's, you know, said again about being intentional and, and I think is the way we are with, with our business and how we, on diversity, equity, and inclusion, really drill down and focus on structural change and the need for structural change. You know, his clear takeaway to me was that this has to be intentional. Then you have to get uh, structural in terms of uh, solutions that may come. Anyway, those are some points that, that, that came out to me. Well, I thought that his experience as having been in a law firm, done other things. Mm. Uh, he focuses on both ends, the, the hiring side and the law school side. He sees the spectrum and he also has, because he's been practicing long enough, he has a sense of the history and art. He really comes at this with an extremely uh, intelligent, thoughtful and balanced approach. Yes. Yes. And when he was talking about, when I asked him how do law firms deal with these issues, if, even if they're wanting to deal with them, how do they deal with them with clients when it comes to dress and other things? Um, you know, the same issue has arisen in the past when it came to diversity and law firms have said, uh, I'm talking about racial diversity, Understood. but they're not going to be cowed by some clients' racial discriminatory policies. And I understand that. That's obviously right. It gets nuanced when sometimes, or can get nuanced, and because the clients aren't always 
so blatantly clear on what they're thinking. But also, as he said, we have a lot of different kinds of clients in big law. We have clients that are in areas where this is the norm. And we have clients in Rust Belt America where it's not the norm. And, uh, and they're more resistant to things like this. And I really thought his observation that there's a difference potentially in the role and the custom that you put on for one purpose. Yes, so long yes. as you can return to your authentic self That's in right. your work setting. That's that right. Really, I thought, for me, eye-opening and, a, and excellent advice. Um, yeah, and, no. and I think it's worth exploring. Law firms need to explore how to get that balance. And and he also, he didn't use the word inclusive, but including in the approach, the affected people so that they right. do feel part of the, of the um, solution. Right. And they understand why they're being asked to do something. And it's for the, the good of their career, the client, et cetera. So long as they can return to their authentic self and feel comfortable. That, that was, um, I thought, extremely powerful. Yeah, I agree, John. And, and I'm glad you brought up that word I- identity. Um, you know, and for me, him just flushing that out and really going through and understanding you know, or trying to understand, right, be an ally and be, uh, be empathetic to the issue. And we know we've seen the stats um, with some in the trans community, uh, some in the non-binary and, the, um, the, you know, the trauma that they're facing over the struggle that he went through 30 years ago saying, well, I better you know, maybe should I come out? Should I not? And then he came out, he didn't get the offer. And so people still struggling with that to this day, which I think produced some of the mental health um, or introduced some of the mental health considerations we're talking about. We'll get into that on another uh, another podcast. Uh, I just think it's worthy to, to think about. And then, you know, if, if you want to comment, I, I thought, again, we come back and the parallelism uh, that you talked about, uh, black and brown people and the role of mentorship and the older white man, not to pick on, you know, all old white men, but you know, what's the role and how do we think about mentoring, um, in situations maybe where we, we don't understand the issues, uh, totally. And I thought he had some good solutions for that. The person who's supposed to be the mentee is also doing mentoring of the person who's supposed to be the mentor, because these are very different issues from those that people of a certain generation dealt with. Now, right. uh, I mean, as he said, the word gay, those things. When I went to law school, that was very much part in the forefront. And we were talking about it. And, and ex- there was a, deg- uh, a, a relatively high degree of acceptance in law school. The, as you put it, you know, the other part after the L, uh, the, uh, the L and the G, yeah. the L and the G, those parts, we didn't even, I don't think they were on our horizon. And so we just didn't have exposure to it. So people of a certain generation are trying to learn and understand. And it's one thing if they've had kids or nephews or grandchildren or friends whose children who they know have gone through that. I think that brings it home at a different level. If they don't, then they need to be educated. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it's probably a great point to, to close on. Uh, I, I, yeah, good discussion, and um, you know, I'm I'm glad that uh, glad that we have it, and you know, sort of to be continued. Brian and I thank you all for listening to the Law in Black and White. We hope you enjoyed it. You can find us at legal-innovators.com for even more insights. You can also subscribe to our podcast and follow Legal Innovators on social media to see what we're up to. We look forward to talking to you next time. 
and stay safe until we hear and see you again.